should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. On Fridays here on the Michelle Miao Show, we play John Zipper's week-to-week political roundtable talk with Commonwealth Club. Enjoy the program. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week-to-Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week-to-Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to commonwealthclub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Hi. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming to today's program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm very excited today to be here with Katie Turr, who has just written a new book, Unbelievable, understatement, um, (laughs) my front row seat to the craziest campaign in American history. Uh, Katie is a correspondent at NBC News and anchor at MSNBC Live. And at just 33, she's already had an amazing career. Um, A former foreign correspondent, Katie was pulled into the Trump campaign with a promise that it would be only about six weeks or so and she could go back to her amazing life in London. (laughs) And spoiler alert, it didn't work out that way. Over the course of 16 months, she's devoted her life to unraveling stories about now President Donald Trump. And in the book, she shares her eye-opening firsthand accounts of being an embed reporter on the 2016 presidential campaign. Katie, welcome to Inforum, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, let's go back to election night. Yeah. Um, you've, at that point, I think you had done more than 3,000 live shots. Mm-hmm. You'd been on the campaign trail for the better part of two years, almost. Yeah. Um, what, what did you think was going to happen that night? I thought Donald Trump would win. I thought I must be crazy for thinking that Donald Trump would win. Um, I remember I had a conversation with um, my now fiance uh, right before um, the morning of election day. And he said, the New York Times said, it's not going to happen. You're totally wrong. And I said, I don't trust it. Just watch. Just watch. Get ready to say President Donald Trump. And And kind of scoffed. And then I left. Um, But I thought that because he had... political following. He had devoted fans um, like we haven't seen in this country in a while, maybe for President Obama. But but, I mean, 20,000 people showed up for him in Mobile, Alabama in August of 2015. That is six months before a caucus. That is six months before any primary. And that is unheard of for a Republican candidate. And the excitement only 
grew from there. Hard to deny. And do you remember the moment where you thought, yeah, this guy is going to win? I, I had multiple moments throughout the campaign. Um, the final one, and I talk about this in the book, the final one was a few weeks before Election Day when Jim Comey reopened, for all purposes, reopened, um, intents and purposes, reopened the um, FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. I, like most times during the campaign when big things would happen, was on a plane. Uh, this plane happened to not have Wi-Fi. I turned my phone on when I landed, and it was just a deluge of emails. And I remember turning to my producer, Anthony, and saying, he's going to win. He is going to win. It's over. So now let's go back to the 16 months before that. You were not supposed to have anything to do with this presidential coverage. This you is... talked about it in the beginning. I was a foreign correspondent for NBC News. They had just moved me out there. I was thinking about a career overseas that would last anywhere from two to the rest of the years that I'm on this earth. Um, <laughs> and I just went back to New York to say hi to the bosses. They tend to forget you when you're overseas, which is a good and a bad thing. And I was standing around the newsroom when um, I believe it was either Macy's or Univision dropped Donald Trump. This was a couple of days after his announcement, and they needed a reporter to cover it, and I literally was just standing around the newsroom. So they said, Katie Turr, why don't you do it? Okay, sure. I did a couple more stories, and then on June 30th, um, they said, you know, we want to put a correspondent on Donald Trump full-time. Um, we think you've been doing a good job with these stories. It'll be you. It'll be six weeks tops. Get up to New Hampshire right now. He's got a rally. At the time, though, you have to, you, I'm sure you guys remember, nobody took him seriously. Uh, the headlines were, were just vicious. Donald Trump is running for president, and it's going to be hilarious. Donald Trump, LOL. I mean, they were just, uh, some of them were more insulting than that. And the feeling was that he wanted to get some attention for his brand. He would never release his financial information. If he did make it to a first debate, then he would be laughed off stage. But, and who knows how serious he was about this, but the attention and the enthusiasm for him was there from the very beginning because he was unwilling to back down. And there was a sense of, gosh, I want to see where this guy is going with, it, with this. I can't take my eyes off him. I think he's terrible, but also hilarious. And you know what? I can't get away with saying the things he said. He's not apologizing. I want to see how far he can get with this. So is this a good assignment to get when your bosses come to you and say, this guy, he's running for president, he's a joke. Hey, why no. don't you go cover him? This is it kind of made me feel like I was a joke, too. I mean, I thought to myself, listen, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Um, but I did feel... And I forgot about this, but one of my friends who I went to go see right after I got this assignment told me about it. I did feel like they thought they weren't taking me seriously because if they really wanted me to cover politics at NBC, they really wanted me to be a part of the fabric of, of political coverage there, they would have assigned me a more serious candidate. In fact, I think I started crying about it. I thought, what, they think I'm a joke at this company. Um, Little did I know, and little did we all know, that uh, sometimes jokes can turn out to be, I guess, true. Yeah. Well, so, so let's go to this, the first rally. Um, and it's the first of several instances you write about, about personally being called out yeah. by the president. 
What was that first rally like to walk So into? this first rally was uh, around a backyard pool in New Hampshire. Um, it was June 30th, 2015. There were about 200 people there. It was more of a curious event than anything else. Uh, there were no serious donors there. They were just kind of uh, what people who liked Donald Trump from The Apprentice and liked that he didn't back down from things. And I show up. It's raining. I have no clue what I'm doing there. I have no clue how seriously to take Donald Trump. I have no clue what he is talking about. He's going on about uh, about the rapists that are coming across the border, defending those lines. He's talking about how terrible the media is, and he's talking about how he always gets really big standing ovations. And I, I remember I'm just I'm taking notes on my phone and tweeting what he's saying, and suddenly I hear my name. And I've never met Donald Trump. I knew him from The Apprentice. I knew him from the New York tabloids. I knew him from birtherism. He was never a more than that to me. We'd never been in a social situation together. I had never reported on him before this. There was no reason in my mind for him to know who I was, but he is calling me out by name. And I look up and he's saying something like, Katie, you haven't even looked up at me once. And I, I, you know, it's Donald Trump, he's bombastic. So I remember just screaming out, I'm tweeting what you're saying. He liked that. So the, that was the beginning and it, it grows throughout the, the campaign to where the attacks on the press and calling out the press become yeah. more and more pointed. What was the point where you finally said, now I feel now this is over the line. This is uncool. I feel unsafe. What was the what was the worst part of that? The day um, he announced his Muslim ban, and this might have been the day that you may have heard my name for the first time, because everybody was tuned in uh, to this announcement. They were watching Donald Trump's rally uh, because he had just done something nobody else had dared do before, which was try to ban an entire religion from coming into this country. And it was so broad at the time, and they had no idea what they were talking about, that they didn't even know if that included Muslim service members, if they would be allowed to come back to this country when their tour of duty was over. I mean, they had no clue. They couldn't even answer that question. So we were all waiting for Donald Trump to say the words in that, that he sent out in that press release. And this was in South Carolina. We're in the belly of a World War II battleship. People are packed to the gills in this place. They are scared and they are angry. Back around this time, San Bernardino happened. A few, I think a few days or a few weeks earlier, where the two, the married couple went to that office building and shot it up. You're all nodding your head, you remember. President Obama gave a speech on terrorism the day before this, addressing it. And Donald Trump, wanting to be seen as somebody who was the strongest on terror, wanted to be seen as the only person willing to do the things that needed to be done to protect Americans, released this statement. He was saying the, the president, President Obama, wasn't vetting people. They were allowing these terrorists into the country. Other Muslims were hiding them purposefully while they were making bombs in their living rooms. The media is essentially complicit in this because the media, the media is refusing to report this. Therefore, they are putting your lives in danger. So that's the feeling of this day. I already felt like it was the kind of day where maybe it was a good idea to lay low. So I wasn't standing on the press riser. I was sitting on the press riser, taking notes. And 
suddenly, just like that first rally, I hear my name. Unlike the first rally where it was kind of joking, um, this one was angry. Katie, she's back there pointing me out in the crowd. She's a liar, a little liar, third weight reporter. The whole place turns around and boos at me in unison. And remember, they're angry because they feel unsafe. And I remember thinking, the only way you can mitigate this, the only way you can, you can diffuse the situation is if you refuse to be scared by it. So I smiled and I waved. Because what the heck else are you supposed to do in those situations? Um, and then I, you know, he made the Muslim ban announcement. I got up, I did a live shot for Chris Matthews and then Chris Hayes. And that's when I, I you know, you, you focus for those moments. That's when I let go. I look at my phone, it's, it's ablaze with concerned um, colleagues, my bosses, my mother, friends, and a Trump campaign staffer shoes off the stragglers that were waiting behind the press pen and points to a couple guys and says, these guys are gonna walk you to your car. And I look up, it's two Secret Service agents. So. Have you, I, I'm curious, since the book has come out, have you heard from any of the people who were at the rallies? Any of the supporters? Yeah. No. Have, did you, so you've never, I, I, it seems like the stories that you tell in this are so sort of horrifying in a very personal way that um, you might get some reaction from people who are like, well, it wasn't you, Katie, it was, you know, you, the media. I haven't heard from anybody. That's um, I've heard from some of the people associated with the campaign in general terms, but I haven't heard from any of the people that I um, covered day in and day out. I think it's dangerous, and I think you're right. I think it wasn't just me. It was me as a symbol of the media. Um, and it's not like he only went after me. He went after a lot of us, and he certainly went after us as a group. I think it's a dangerous thing and an easy trap to fall into, to say everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist, is a xenophobe, is dumb, is a hick, is uneducated, is poor, whatever you want to say, um, however you want to diminish them. Yeah, it wasn't the majority of the country, but it was a good portion of the country who did feel sincerely left behind. And they weren't all terrible people, they weren't all screaming vile things at the media. Some people were just, just genuinely felt like they had no other option out there. And then there were the others that got into the rally and there was a mob mentality and it was part of the show and they, they, they um, took part in the, in the act of it and would never do those things when they walked out of the rally, would never call somebody a C-U-N-T walking down the street or a B-I-T-C-H or call them a liar and point at their face, or say kill the media, or drop dead media, or CNN, they might say CNN sucks, because <laughs> yeah. it was kind of, I guess it was kind of a funny rallying cry at times. Um, not very funny, but you know. Well, one of my favorite anecdotes that you have is about a hairdresser you met in a, a bathroom yeah, so at one of the rallies. This, was, this rally was right after the Muslim ban. I'm, I, I feel something akin to uh, public enemy number one among among Trump supporters. I'm in a bathroom in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's a few days before Christmas. I'm about to take 10 days off, the first 10 days I've had off um, since I started, go back to London to hopefully see my flat where I hoped it was still there. Um, and 
uh, I'm standing in this, this, this concrete bathroom. I'm trying to curl my hair because I'd been standing outside and it was like San Francisco weather where you're just getting really frizzy. And um, a lady walks in and she says, you know, can I help you? And I said, you know, I, just, I remember standing there thinking like, do I look crazy? Is she crazy? <laughs> I have a hot curling iron in my hand. Am I going to hand this over to a Trump supporter right now? Um, but she was really nice. And she smiled. I think she saw that I was questioning whether I should do it. And she's like, don't worry, I'm a hairdresser. Like, I can help you. And she did, and she did a great job curling my hair, and she was very sweet, and we talked you know, about how excited she was to see Trump and uh, the Christmas holidays. And she was lovely in every sense of the word, lovely human being. And we said goodbye, I did my nightly news hit, Donald Trump takes the stage, and he launches into Vladimir Putin, and talking about how Vladimir Putin has been accused of ordering the killing of not only political opponents, political dissidents, but journalists who dare question his authority and corruption. And Donald Trump's on stage and he said, you know, he's been saying nice things about Putin. So he starts joking, I would never kill journalists. Wait, hold on, would I? Meh, I do hate them, but I would never kill them. He's joking about killing us. I don't think that's funny, period. I'm sorry, I don't think that's funny in any way to joke about the murdering. And the whole crowd, I mean, this is a crowd of, I think, 5,000 people. The media is, it's an arena, a basketball arena, so they're up on the rafters and around the, on the floor, and the media is in the center of the room. There's probably 30 to 50 of us surrounded by bicycle racks, which are, you know, they come up to your waist. Um, and the whole place starts laughing and booing at us. And I remember thinking, that woman who just curled my hair in the bathroom is somewhere in this crowd. Does she think it's funny? I don't know. I haven't heard from her. Well, I hope she texts you or tweets at you. Or I hope so. Tweet at too. us if you're out there. Um, so the other thing I think is so important about these rallies that we didn't you know, as a media, but also, you know, a country too. appreciate in retrospect is, yes, there were huge numbers of people, but I think because of the incredible things that were coming out of his mouth at those rallies, it was easy to say, well, yeah, but those people are just the passionate ones. They're not the ones who are actually going to turn out. And you, you detailed the nine different types of rally attenders in the book. And that, I, I will be amazed make it if you remember all of them. I'm sorry? That didn't make it into the final Oh, book. it didn't. Okay, no. well, there are nine types. There are. Well, there's a number of... Um, through it? Yeah, well, no. No? There's a number of... Uh, it just, what I was so impressed with and what I tried to detail in the book, and I probably didn't do it as elegantly as I, I was intending, um, but I tried to talk, people just love American flag apparel. And I didn't realize you could get so many different varieties and styles of American flag apparel. I just thought it was a remarkable thing to witness. You could get rhinestone American flag hats. You could get um, dusty hipster or hippie American flag t-shirts, American flag cowboy boots, American flag capes, American flag socks. I mean, any variety of clothing. And I, was, I just thought it was amazing. I, I didn't realize, I, I tried to f call a few vendors for American flag apparel to see if they were doing better in the Trump era, but nobody ever called me back. <laughs> There's a market in it, evidently. <laughs> so, so you grew up in newsrooms. Yeah. Um, but not in a, 
traditional way that somebody might think. Yeah. Um, what were what what are your earliest experiences of being in a newsroom like? Um, well, oh gosh, I was I was younger than I than I have a memory for. My parents were helicopter news journalists. Um, they actually were up here covering the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. Um, it was 89, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, good. I got my memories right. Um, so the, my mom likes to joke, half joke, that I've been covering news since I was born, since I was in utero, and I was. My mom was on a breaking news story the day I was born. She was carrying, back in the day, uh, you had to, in order to tape, take tape to film, uh, the camera had to be attached to a deck, a 17-pound deck, and a cable, like an umbilical cord, is attached to the camera. My dad ha is... Um, is covering a shooting and my mom's holding the deck. This was a, an anchor in Los Angeles who was shot in a, a botched robbery um, in the parking lot of KABC. He was fine. Um, but a few hours later, my mom gave birth with me, uh, to me. And they ended up getting, they were stringers, so they would go out in the middle of the night and gather you know, car accidents and shootings and sell the tapes to the local news in Los Angeles. And then they, got the bright idea of buying a helicopter and doing it from the air. So they were stringers from, from the air and they shot some video that you guys might have seen. The Reginald Denny beating in the LA riots, the guy that was pulled from the red gravel truck um, and beaten to within an inch of his life. My mom was hanging out over the skids with a beta cam on her shoulders. My dad was piloting and reporting. Um, when they got back on the ground, they found bullet damage in the engine blades of the helicopter. I know, <laughs> terrifying. Uh, I'm glad we have distance from that and I can, I can marvel at it now. Um, and she also, they found bullet damage in the, in the battery that was beneath her seat, my mom. Um, so after that and during the, the trial of those four gang members who, who beat the living hell out of Reginald Denny, um, they got a lot of death threats. And my dad would sleep with a, he got a concealed weapons license and he'd sleep with a gun underneath his pillow. And I ended up getting death threats in the campaign and I remember not being too, I mean, I'm nervous about it certainly, but also not feeling like this is completely absurd and unusual. And it didn't click until a little bit later on that it didn't feel so unusual or so unheard of because my parents had done the same thing. I was brought up with this idea that Journalism is worth risking your life for. Well, and in the Reginald Denny, uh, the Reginald Denny beating, um, you, you say that he was actually trying to use the helicopter to. Yeah, help. my dad. My they lowered. My dad was piloting, reporting, and we also had a second pilot, I believe, in the helicopter. And they um, they got lower and lower and lower to try and scare the the gang members off because I mean they were they were beating this guy to death, throwing a brick at his head on live television, and the cops were nowhere to be found. The LAPD had just abandoned the city, and my dad said so on the air, and certainly didn't make any friends within the LAPD after that. Um, <laughs> but it's true, and that it shows the power of journalism yeah. to illustrate a state of a city yeah. through, through technology at Sometimes the time. live pictures are, are the, that's the only way you can truly tell a story, live, in the moment, reporting. And I think a lot of that was done um, with the Trump campaign. We get a lot of heat for airing so much of him live. And I think a discussion should be had about whether or not that was done 
Um, it was gratuitous, but it also was the only thing that could really give you a sense of how the country felt and what was happening. A lot of people wanted to discount it, but I'm sure when you, when you turned on the TV and you saw those screaming crowds, sometimes 10,000 people deep, I'm sure that resonated with you. I'm sure that it resonated with you in a way that um, this election would not have had we not done that. Well, and your parents also had OJ in the white, white Bronco. Yeah. And in the book, you mention that some people blame them for the downfall of local television news and that there might be a little truth that, you know, what starts as a needing to get information out to people, at what point does it become entertainment, entertainment and gratuitous. And I, I wonder how, having been through that and seen your parents, you know, perhaps unwittingly go down that route, how does that inform what you do on a daily basis? Does it give you pause? Do you think like- it certainly gave me pause? It, of course, there was a t- there were times in the campaign where I felt like, is this the best way to go about this? And I think we were all everybody in the news business was questioning, is this the best way for us to cover him? He, it was it was hard to figure out because we had never seen anything quite like it. He would bury one controversy with the next. Should we talk about the controversies or do we talk about the voters? How do you ignore, I mean, he's just asked Russia to hack into Hillary Clinton's email. How do you ignore that? Oh wait, now he's going after a federal judge. We have to cover that, but there's still this Russia thing. Oh, and now he's talking about grabbing women by their private parts. We have to focus on that. I mean, every every few days, if not every week or so, there was another massive story to d- cover with him, and it buried it buried the policy. There was no policy to really well, talk right. about because they didn't have much policy. Well, and and you know, at what point do you you know? I think there was a lot of criticism that climate change, for example, was never substantially discussed in the debates. It yeah. wasn't really ever part of you know anybody's questions of him in an, in an aggressive way. And that that's just one example. Oh, we no, we questioned him on we questioned him on a lot of these things in, in press conferences, but in, invariably, and we would go after him, but invariably that would get buried by something else he said. Invariably. The press conference where he asked Russia to hack into the election, I asked him, you know, do you think the Geneva Convention is out of debate out of date? Because he was talking about, you know, reinstating waterboarding and the Geneva Convention say that you can't torture, it's a war crime. And he said, yeah, I think they need to be renegotiated. I'm sorry, that's a big story. <laughs> we didn't talk about it. We didn't, t- I shouldn't swear, should I? I'm As, sorry. This is on, is this on? That's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're in San Francisco, that's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, mm, potty mouth. Um, and we didn't talk about it at all. At all, it was, like a, it was like a mention at the end of my story because he talked about Russia. That was what was difficult with Donald Trump. It's not that we were so consumed with these, these little, you know, gratuitous details or the tweets, and yeah, we were to a degree, but there were also really big stories that would bury, um, they would just bury the other story over and over again. The, the, and people ask, you know, why did we talk so much about Hillary Clinton's emails? And I, and I can't really, speak to that because I didn't cover the Clinton campaign. But the analogy I have, and it's an imperfect analogy, so bear with me, is that Hillary Clinton got a stain on her shirt. And 
She couldn't get the stain out. All you can do when you're talking to Hillary Clinton is look at that stain on her shirt. The emails, emails, emails. It's a stain. You can't ignore it, even if you try. Donald Trump got a stain on his shirt and then another stain on his shirt and then kept staining his shirt over and over and over and over and over again to the point where you're like, oh, that's just the way the shirt is. And so looking back on it, but what? it made it really hard for anyone else to, to, to right. well, to you run against this him or also to cover him. You ask these questions and you get a, yeah, we should renegotiate the Geneva Convention and then it's on to something else. Yeah. And, and you feel like you've wasted that question. Exactly. Like, and Which is an incredible thing for, I think, anyone who's not a professional interviewer to appreciate. Yeah. The, this is so important, I can't get anyone to pay attention to it feeling. Absolutely. So what do you think we could have done better I mean, I think it's, the onus is both on us, but it's also on you. Uh, I think the American public, you have the power to choose what you want to see and what you want to hear or talk about with your remote control, with where you decide to invest in news coverage, which papers you buy, which sections you read the most. I mean, what, what sections do you read the most? Do you read the inflammatory Donald Trump headline the most? Or are you finding a little um, obscure story about, you know, uh, the, I don't know, my, the drought's a big story here, or obscure story about a corrupt community um, uh, uh, system in, in Akron, Ohio? You're not looking at that. You're looking at the big headline about Donald Trump. So it's both of us. So now you have your own show that you're anchoring. Um, what do you, you want to do with that? It's a really good I question. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I think it's so interesting that now we have this whole, you know, hindsight's 2020. Um, I think it's probably indisputable that the policy debate gets eclipsed by the drama of the day. And yet you have uh, a cable news format that is predisposed to breaking news to the drama of the day. It is. Do you? How do you think about that now that you have some keys to? Uh, I have be some the boss. keys. I don't have all the keys. Um, I my two p.m. hour is difficult in the sense that the press briefing is on every day, uh, or tends to be on every day during my hour. There's something happening. There's always a breaking news event, so you have to adjust for whatever that happens to be. So if it is a, a, a press briefing, what I try to do to make it a valuable thing is come out of it and fact check or contextualize what has just happened. Um, I wish, and I'm hoping to do this with my show where I can, is I just think we need to, to focus on people more focus on voters more and focus on communities more in a way that we haven't done so well in the past. I'd like to see, this is gonna come back to haunt me, but I'd like to see uh, in the 2020 election, I'd like to see more stories done about America rather than the candidates. And we have the resources to do that, it's just as long as they're you know, um, uh, put in the in the right place. Why does that not happen now? I don't know. You tell me. You know, I, I remember um, when the voter fraud commission was announced, and and I I apologize, I don't remember the station, but the anchor berating whomever he was interviewing. It might have been Jeff Sessions about, isn't this not true? Isn't this not true? And I just thought at the time, God, if we could stop yelling at each other and get to wherever people are voting yeah but it takes 
you know, it takes a lot of resources to do that. It's easier to have the debate on. And there's also, I think, a pressure to fact check people live yeah. that devolves into that yelling. So Well, it's hard, especially um, especially with this administration, is that people will come on and they'll just tell you something that's not true in, in a matter-of-fact matter way. They'll just they'll just rattle off something that is patently not true, and you and you try to push back, and then they'll just say it again, and you push back, and they'll say it again, and it's it's a bit frustrating. How do you talk to somebody who's not telling you who you don't share a set of facts with? How do you argue with that person, and should you be arguing with that person? I mean, it's somebody from the administration, so you have to have them on television because this is this is who is representing the American government. But then again, should we have somebody who's not telling the truth on television? It's a very hard um, conundrum to figure out. What, what are, I don't know what the solution is. I think we're, still, we're all still trying to figure trying it out. Trying to figure it out. Well, you know, the, it, it's, it's subsided somewhat with Spicer leaving, I think. But, um, you know, at what point does the press have a group role? But Sarah Huckabee Sanders will say things Oh, that are patently false. I mean, she said that Donald Trump had 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 more bipartisan had done had gotten more bipartisan deals done in the past eight days than in the last eight years. I mean, that is just right. Come on. Well, I, I it's also I, no deal. Do you not think the personal attacks against individual outlets has abated somewhat? Yeah, I think probably has. And so, so what is the role? You know, so in those early days when uh, CNN was was being attacked and, and and MSNBC was being attacked and people were being not included in press briefings, is there a collective role for the press to make sure that one question actually gets answered that we don't bounce around to things? Well, you know this. You're an editor of a major publication, major newspaper, right. um, and. We have a variety of different reporters that are in any news conference, especially the White House briefing. Some people's beats are business. Other people's beats are the environment. Some people have, have a story that they're working on they need an answer to about, uh, I don't know, some policy or the Russia investigation. So you all go in, and that's part of what makes us makes our business great, is that everybody's working on different threads, and those threads don't need the support of another journalist. Um, so that that's why you can feel they're sometimes disjointed. But I, I do think, I think personally, that if a question at a press briefing is not answered, then it behooves the next person to take up that thread and continue it until it gets answered. You do see that to a degree in, in the briefings now, and that's why you'll see Sarah Huckabee Sanders get frustrated and just say, well, I've already answered that question. I've already answered that question. I've already answered that question, even when she hasn't. She hasn't. So, so you're 33, which is amazing that you've already written a book and done as much work as you have in your career. Um, you were also part of the first all-female... Female-led. Um, Female-led. We had a couple guys. Me. We had a couple guys in there. <laughs> Token guys. Female-led um, political team. Yeah. And especially in a year where the gender played such a role in... Um, the discussion, not only for having the first female candidate, but also some of the things, the harassment, the allegations, some things that were caught on tape. Um, what role do you think it played to have an all-female journalism crew, journalist crew? It was, well, first off, it wasn't premeditated. It just so happened that NBC had the good fortune and good sense to have 
Hallie Jackson covering Trump with me, Casey Hunt, Kristen Welker, and Andrea Mitchell covering Hillary Clinton. And it wasn't because um, we were a bunch of girls and they thought this was a good election to have girls lead the coverage. It was, it was truly because we were doing the best journalism at our company and we were on the road every day and we were digging the hardest and we were, I mean, part of it was because we all, we all wanted to run over the other for the scoop in a good way, in a competitive, in a healthy competitive way. Um, but we, we were busting our butt. I think it, it's, it's remarkable that it happened in this election where sex and sexism was such a major topic. And how does Donald Trump, this, this man who has the reputation he does, run against Hillary Clinton, the first female major party candidate to run for president, somebody that everybody thought would win. How does that happen? And do the women covering him, does that change their coverage? I don't think it, I think if anything, it made the coverage more, um, more uh, well-balanced and in-depth and, and nimble. But I, I truly, and you know this, I don't think because we're women, it was, uh, it was better or worse. I think it was great because... But do you we think, journalists. how am I going to come across when I explain this story? When I didn't I, think about it. Not at all. Not at all. Do you think? Because why would, would I think about it? Well, I, I, because I think, I, I can only speak for myself, but I think sometimes there's a criticism or a perceived criticism or fear of criticism that if you, you know, cover the Miss America you know, calling her a pig, saying she was too, saying she was too fat, or um, you know, the grab them by the thing. That after a while, you can become shrill, and that people assume that you're going on about it because of your gender. You know, I had one, I had one um, live shot where I was talking to Chris Matthews, and it was after the the Holly, Access Hollywood tape came out, and um, I I got pretty passionate on the subject. Um, and I remember stepping off camera, and this is probably one of the only times I think I felt that, that I can think of at least. I stepped off camera and somebody I work with said, I think you know, I think you gotta reel it in. I think you gotta reel it in. And then I got a text. Was that a man or a woman? It was a man. I got a text from another man that I work with saying, you nailed it. You hit it home. Oh, how interesting. It was interesting. I remember second-guessing myself for a moment, but then saying, uh-uh, no. This is, I, this is the way it is. This is not me feeling a certain way. This is not me, me reacting because I am a woman. This is the way it is. You do not brag about those sort of things. Well, is it, Sexual assault. Is it wrong, you think, to react as a woman? No. No. I mean, I, that's, I mean it's, such a, it's such a hard, it's a hard discussion to have. Because in, in some ways, I don't want to invalidate what I did in 2016 and the coverage I did be, by saying it's because, it's I'm, because yeah. I'm a woman. Um, I think that, that I, I, I don't know, I'm, and this is credit to my parents, I wasn't raised thinking that I could be the first female anything. I was raised, you could do whatever you want, you can be whomever you want. I thought I would be a Supreme Court, ju court justice. Oh, that's crazy, that's what I wanted to be too. Really? <laughs> no, that's... I, I mean, if you look at my I knew I liked high Katie school Tur. <laughs> yearbook, and my high school friends are here, but in the, my high school yearbook, it was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I'm gonna be a Supreme Court justice. Now why, okay, well, 
excuse us while we have this off conversation. <laughs> I, want, uh, I wanted to be Sandra Day O'Connor, but I think it's because she was the only woman I knew of who was influential. I didn't see, but I didn't even look at the court in a male-female way. Interesting. I didn't even. I just thought, I want to be a Supreme Court. I, I want to be the one deciding, period. I want to be the ultimate authority. It was crazy. <laughs> um, but I never, I, I mean, I played, I played baseball with the boys when I was growing up. I was very much a tomboy. I never, I didn't do the girly things, the quote-unquote girly things. Um, I don't think I really wore a dress until I got to college. Um, but I never considered any of the decisions I was making to be, oh, you're going to do really well for a woman. Or you're gonna, I just never thought of that. So when I was covering the campaign, I just never thought of, you're a woman, this is the way you're going to be perceived. I just, didn't, I just didn't think about it. And that's why I bristle when someone says, do you think Donald Trump just went after you because you're a woman? I don't really know how to answer that because I take issue with the question. I think it, I, I don't, I think it diminishes the journalism I did. Well, and to NBC's credit, I don't think they made a big deal out of it. They didn't. Either, which I thought was one of the most refreshing things because I'm not sure we would have been like that as an industry five or ten years ago. No, at I all. think we would have made a made a larger. There was this discussion, um, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, uh, where one day somebody looked up and they they looked at the TV screen, and you know the boxes we have, um, you know we have five reporters covering this, and if it's a storm, we have 52 reporters covering this, and you see those little boxes. Um, well, we someone looked up and noticed. Uh, that all of the faces on the screen one day and all the boxes were women. It was me, Andrea Mitchell, Chris Jansen, Hallie Jackson, Casey Hunt, and Kristen Welker. I think Kelly O'Donnell as well. All of us. And someone said, oh God, you know, they tweeted a picture of it. Look at all these girls, look at all these ladies. In a positive way. And there was a thought like, maybe we should, maybe we should package this. Maybe we should do a commercial about this. And one of our um, editors, Daphne Linzer, said no. They're not the best female team in politics. They are the best political reporters in politics. So w one thing that I don't think happened to any of the male reporters, though, well, I think you might have been the only one that the president kissed during the campaign. You know, you're going to have to ask Jim Acosta <laughs> and Tom Yamas and... Uh, so, so I don't think Jim Acosta got kissed. <laughs> so, so tell us about that interaction. I don't, I don't think Donald Trump was, I just think that's, he doesn't know the boundaries of things. He doesn't consider the boundaries. I don't think he knew what he was doing when he gave you a big smooch. I don't think he was like, I'm, I'm going to mess with her. No, I don't know. I mean, this was... Um, this was uh, uh, Morning Joe. We were in New Hampshire. Um, it was early on in the campaign. It was November of 2015. And it was the day after the Wisconsin-Milwaukee GOP debate. I wasn't at that debate. I was watching it from New Hampshire. To bring you into my mind a little bit, I was feeling very, very much like I was being um, diminished. I thought, you know, am I not going to lead this story any longer? Why am I not at the debate? You were crazy on television. We second guess ourselves all the time and assume that that it's not just television journalists I guess it's, <laughs> it's, it's journalists period and um 
so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you've got to up your game. You've got to really take this beat seriously. You've got to break some news. You've got to get on top of it now or someone else is going to get this story. Peter Alexander is going to get the story um, or whoever. And I had just done a hit with Joe and Mika talking about Donald Trump's change in tone at the debate. It wasn't the hardest hitting journalism I've ever done. We were basically talking about why he didn't go after Ben Carson. I was trying to figure out why I thought maybe he didn't go after Ben Carson. Ultimately, you know, it was not memorable. Um, but it wasn't negative about, it wasn't critical to Donald Trump. That's the key point. Um, I get off stage, offset. I'm standing in the hallway. Donald Trump walks in. And you've seen him walk. He kind of bounds. He barrels. His jackets, of the, the flaps of his jackets kind of wave. Um, and suddenly, he, he sees me, and he goes directly towards me, puts his hands on my shoulders, and gives me a kiss on the cheek. And I froze. Because it's not that you know I'm not used to people giving me a kiss on the cheek. I, I mean, I, that happens all the time. But that, those are my colleagues, those are my friends, I'm in a social setting. I, I, they're not people that I'm covering in my job. They're not, they're not a presidential candidate that I'm covering. And I remember thinking, oh my God, my bosses are never gonna take me seriously. Because if you saw that with one of your reporters, would you take her seriously? I would definitely question what was going on. You would question sure. what was going on. Because you're not supposed to get close to the person you are covering. You're supposed to be able to have enough distance to cover them critically when you need to and positively when they deserve it. Or when they well, deserve is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Um, and I remember trying to find the senior producer of Morning Joe to see if the cameras might have caught that moment. And I did, and, and the senior producer said no. And I remember just thinking, oh, thank God. And then Donald Trump is talking to Joe and Mika, and I hear my name. What happened to Katie? She was so great, I gave her a big kiss. <laughs> and I was just like, you've got to be kidding. And I, I don't know, I just continue to do my job. To this point about bias and how you cover a candidate. I think there's a lot, of, uh, and you mentioned this, that when you were first asked, you know, maybe you should go cover him for a little while, and it was offhanded, and hey, if he wins, you'll get to go to the White House. There's this sort of um, understood thing that if you spend that much time with a candidate and they win, that's good for your career too. Yeah. And in, in a global sense too, I'd say, you know, the attacks that MSNBC has suffered, that CNN suffered, have also translated to higher ratings, arguably. Yeah, and that's true. Um, we do have more eyes on us than we've had in a long time. Um, our ratings are better than they were. People, But that's because people are more engaged than they have been in politics in a long time. So it is, it's weird. It's weird to talk about Donald Trump assuming the presidency and, uh, and our, our businesses doing better. It feels uncomfortably symbiotic. 
But I don't think it is. I think that because Donald Trump won, people are more hungry for the truth than they have been in a long time because they feel like they are not getting it from this administration. So they're looking where they can to find it. And that's why MSNBC's ratings are up. And that's why CNN's ratings are up. And that's why the New York Times, despite what Donald Trump says, is not failing and their subscriptions are higher. Same thing with the Washington Post, the Chronicle, LA Times. And it's in, in some ways, it's good because we have been struggling because people have been turning away from us. And the only way you can keep a, a healthy... Um, uh, keep the fourth estate healthy is if you consume. And, and that consumption means that, unfortunately, you, you've got to also pay for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, subscribe to The Chronicle. Yes. <laughs> and, and please watch Katie. But that, also, but that also extends not just to national news. I know everyone's probably turning, putting MSNBC or hopefully MSNBC or CNN or whatever on all the time. But it, it, it really does extend to local news. And it, we get a lot of our, our base reporting, our, our, our feeling of how things, our, our fingers on the ground, our ears on the ground. What's the term? Our ears Boots on, the, on ground. the ground. Boots on the ground, whatever. Um, local news does a lot of really great journalism. And without local news, national news suffers. So I would encourage everybody to turn on the TV at 11 o'clock tonight. <laughs> to the NBC station. So, <laughs> so we have our first question. During the campaign, the press pointed out over and over again how much free publicity Trump was getting. Tens of millions of dollars over the other candidates. I think it was billions. And I felt at that time that it was possible that all of this publicity was serving to a certain extent to legitimize his candidacy. Mm. Looking back, how do you feel about that? I think that's a discussion we have to have. I, I don't fully agree with this idea that cable news or CNN or whatever, MSNBC, got Donald Trump elected. I think that is discounting uh, a lot of voters in this country and do that at your own peril. South Carolina primary, um, Donald Trump won. And we looked at the exit polls and asked people when they decided and they decided months and months and months before that. So they didn't, it didn't matter that his rallies were being aired every single day. It didn't matter that he was dominating the news coverage. They already knew that they were going to vote for him. We in the news business tried to keep up with it, tried to illuminate where we needed, where we saw darkness. We tried to fact check when there was something that was true. We tried to call out, I mean, this is the first time I think that Anybody, the New York Times has called something the president has said a lie, or the, a candidate has said an outright lie. Lie is a really hard word to justify using in our business because you have to find intent. And that's, it's hard to figure out somebody else's intent. So we were trying very hard to give as much information as we could to the American public. Did we go overboard? I think we're figuring that out. I think nobody's, nobody has a, has a solid answer on whether or not we did too much, too little, or how we're gonna do it in the future. Do you think it's the role of the press to give equal news coverage to candidates? 
Yes and no. I mean, I think if one candidate is dominating the polls and one candidate is is just dominating the news cycle because they are saying ridiculous things or they are they are garnering a groundswell of support, they're they're very obviously going to get more attention. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, Jim Gilmore, poor guy, um, wasn't <laughs> he was mad? I think he wasn't mentioned in 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 Hillary Clinton's book. I don't. Maybe I'm dreaming that. I kind of had a dream about that. But Jim Gilmore didn't get a lot of attention. But he didn't get a lot of attention because he never resonated with voters. And should we have should we have um, artificially elevated him? I don't know. I, that's a, it's, a, it's a hard decision. I'm really happy that I'm not the one making those decisions because I don't, I don't know. Hi. What do you think is Donald Trump's greatest political strength? He's and charming. what do you think is his fatal flaw? I think his greatest political strength is twofold. He's charming and people cannot figure him out. So one-on-one, you can sit down with Donald Trump and you can think that this guy is a... Think whatever you want about him. You can think whatever you want. And uh, minute to minute, he, he will literally have you smiling or laughing because he's very good in, in an interpersonal setting. He's also somebody that's very difficult to understand. People want to overanalyze him. He's simple. He reacts from the gut he wants to be liked. That's all you got to know about him. It, I, and, and I don't, I, I'm not trying to get a laugh. I'm serious. He reacts from the gut he wants to be liked, period. There's not a three-dimensional chess game going on there. Um, and what was his, what was his, his weakness, his weakness, um, he doesn't know anything about policy (laughs) and he's shown, it seems from what we have been able to gather, he's shown little interest in figuring out more or learning more about policy. Hi Katie. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us what it's like covering the Trump administration on MSNBC on a slow news day? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it, it brings to mind something that was brought up before about how um, there's so many things that break that day that are outrageous or crazy. Um, how do you, you know, seriously deal with covering stuff that happens today, but also digging deeper into stuff he said yesterday the week before? I, I um, there's no such thing as a slow news day. So uh, there are times when there are stories that we really want to get into, we really want to get into, that we can't because something else has happened or one of the news briefings has taken over the hour. So it can be extraordinarily frustrating. Um, we try to circle back when we can. I don't think we cover. I really don't think we cover climate change enough. I try to get a story about climate change whenever I can into the show, and we just we just do not do it enough. Also, when we can, and, and to differentiate the stories about conflict of interest, we, we tend to do this, I feel like, I just kind of feel like we're doing the same story every single day, and it's, it's frustrating for me, I'm assuming it's frustrating for the viewer. It's difficult. Luckily though, on days when I can't get to something, Ali Velshi picks it up at three, and he invariably gets to something that I didn't think of. Did the constant news cycle, saying something crazy every day that you had to t- track down, does that impede your avil- ability when you're on the road to go talk to voters? It did. It did. I mean, you've, you found yourself, 
um, trying to get reactions to things instead of finding out more about why they felt that Donald Trump was their only option or the best option. It was hard. It was like, I mean, I feel bad for the Republicans in Congress right now. That's all they get asked about. They got to comment on whatever Donald Trump did. I mean, here's a story that, that Congress wasn't, and I think they should have been asked about this more, um, Congress wasn't fully asked about because they were on recess, was uh, Charlottesville. And I'd love to keep talking about that, but we just we keep moving forward and moving forward. Given the recent report in the Washington Post about two reporters overhearing a very loud conversation. New York Times. That was Ken New Vogel. York Times, sorry. <laughs> but, but it was, I read it in the Washington Post. But between two Trump attorneys, Cobb and Dowd, did they, were they, are they just stupid to talk this loud in a place that they know that reporters will be hanging out? Or did they do it on purpose? And if they did do it on purpose, did they, is this a means for them to leak information or purposefully leak misinformation? Um, I'm not good at speculating. I will say when you are in Washington, D.C., presume that everybody around you is one of two things, a reporter or a congressional aide. <laughs> so don't have a conversation anywhere in that city that you wouldn't want to show up in the papers or on the Acela between New York and DC. That's also some, somewhere that's famous for people saying things la more loudly than they should. Yeah, you should know better. A good lesson for all the would-be police. But maybe they shouldn't know better. That way we can keep hearing things that we're not supposed to hear. <laughs> I don't think it was a strategy to drop things. I don't know, I could be wrong. Well, thank you so much for coming here today. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a tradition, it's a tradition of informant at the Commonwealth Club to ask all of our speakers the final question, which uh -huh. is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? Well, it's not going to be food tape, Yeah, which well, I think is the most I already thing I've ever one. heard. Um, I'm going to be selfish. Finding a way to make coach seats more like your bed at home so you can sleep uh, sitting up. <laughs> wonderful. Let's all give a big round of applause for Katie. She's going to be signing copies of her book, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, down the hall. Thank you so Thank much, you. Katie. It's a good read, I promise. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. 
It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.